welcome to today's podcast episode, providing answers to your questions from the recent webinar, What All Practitioners Should Know About Mechanisms and Assessment of Pain. This program is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS Program Companies and is provided by Clinical Care Options in partnership with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Alliance to Advance Comprehensive Integrative Pain Management, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and ProCE. I'm Gabby Giacona with Clinical Care Options, and I'm delighted to introduce our expert faculty, Ms. Amanda Zimmerman, a physician assistant at West Forsyth Pain Management in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So we have a lot of great questions, and let's start with the first one here, which is, so we talked about peripheral and central sensitization. Are those phenomenons reversible, or is that kind of something we need to prep patients to deal with for the rest of their lives? Okay, so peripheral and central sensitization happen after Dr. Nagpal talked about the um, mechanisms of pain, and there are those substance P and glutamate, those things that are released when you have constant pain signals coming in. So those are the things that cause central sensitization to happen. So until you sort of quell those down, you're going to continue to have central sensitization and peripheral sensitization. And someone who has a chronic pain condition, typically those things are not reversible. In an acute situation, if you can sort of fix the injury per se and they get better, then yes, you can stop those things from happening. But typically peripheral and central sensitization, once that happens, you really, it's very difficult to reverse it. Got it. And so the next question is, which health provider do pain patients typically present to first? And then kind of how would we move them to the correct provider if they present to someone who might not be specializing in pain first? Yes, typically um, pain patients present to their primary care first. That's why it's so important for primary care to have the the appropriate education so that they can navigate this situation. Um, So many times I've been doing pain medicine for 20 years, and I've seen a lot of patients come who have not been diagnosed correctly or were never diagnosed with their condition. It's so important for just to have a general understanding of pain complaints and pain conditions so that you can navigate it and send them to the appropriate people uh, and get a, um, an accurate diagnosis. Great. So if they're provide, or they're presenting to a primary care provider first, Would you suggest that the primary care provider have a contact in mind for a pain specialist or like a psychologist or someone else to send them to next? So it depends in the type of pain. If it's um, ongoing for greater than three months, which would be considered a, you know, textbook chronic pain condition, uh, at that point, they probably do need to see a pain provider. Um, But my advice would be to get a good diagnosis first. If you're thinking about prescribing an opioid, I would send that to a pain specialist. Um, typically these people can get better with physical therapy, um, massage therapy, chiropractic treatment, you know, depending on their condition. So, you know, unless you're thinking that they need an injection of some sort, they have a spinal, you know, know which, uh, conditions are appropriate for a pain specialist. So many times we see that they're just prescribed an opioid and some flexural and sent on their merry way. Uh, and then they're on it chronically. And then there's really never a diagnosis or they're not seeing the appropriate provider. I think a a basic rheumatological workup, if they have what you think might be a rheumatological condition, would be, you know, good. And then if you you get a positive RA or ANA, you can send them to a rheumatologist, you know, depending on what your initial workup is. I think that you have to have sort of a very specific um, algorithm that you follow, uh, which would guide your decisions. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so these next two questions are about making an accurate diagnosis. So what history and physical exam findings help you differentiate neuropathic pain from nociplastic pain? Okay, so nociplastic pain, that's a complicated one. Neuropathic pain, you know, is a, is a damage to the nerve. So uh, history is that it would be a burning, paresthesias, tingling, numbness, weakness, possibly, you know, in, in conditions like CRPS, they might have some swelling, some color changes in there. And then on physical exam, neuropathic pain, they might have the allodynia, you know, where they just, um, they're just hypersensitive to any type of light touch, or they may have loss of sensation. So on physical exam, you're going to be able to uh, tease those things out. Nociplastic pain is a generalized all over body pain typically associated with long-standing chronic pain. Like we talked about the glutamate and the substance P, it's upregulation of those transmitters uh, or substances in the body that cause a nociplastic pain condition. So, you know, a neuropathic pain would present uh, sort of acutely, and then a nociplastic pain would be something that would develop over time. So, um, you know, someone who's just talking about generalized pain that they can't really specifically tell you a specific injury or a specific location Typically, that would be more a nociplastic pain condition. Gotcha. And so that next question about diagnosis, the patient, we know sometimes the way that they describe their pain is accurate to them, but it's hard to kind of interpret on your side. So a patient is telling you they have a sharp pain. What questions would you ask next to figure out what sharp pain that really is? Yeah. So everybody's going to say, it's sharp, killing me. <laughs> so you're going to sort of go through your, first of all, the mechanism of injury. Uh, is going to guide your decision-making in terms of um, figuring out what type of pain it is. And remember that a lot of pain is mixed. So, you know, even though it's a nociceptive condition, say they have a broken arm, right? They may have suffered some nerve injury associated with that fracture. So they may have some neuropathic component as well. So that would be a mixed condition. And many people have nociceptive and neuropathic mix. That's a very common thing. A lot of times it's not just one or the other. So in terms of sharp, you know, you just want to ask those neuropathic pain questions. Is it numb? Is it burning? Are you getting weak? Are you having any motor issues? And in terms of nociceptive, you know, you're just, is it, it's just aching all the time. It's a deep ache. It just hurts all the time. Does it get worse when you're standing for longer periods of time? You know, what makes it worse? What makes it better? Just go through your usual PQRST, you know, that we learned in school about, you know, to try and tease out exactly what you're dealing with. Great. Um, and then our next question is, opioid-induced hyperalgesia um, basically the same as nociplastic pain, or how would you categorize that? That's, an, that's a great question. <laughs> I've never really thought about that, but um, I, I think it probably could be put into the nociplastic pain category because it is just a generalized uh, pain condition but it's a different it's a different mechanism. So, you know, nociplastic pain, we think of the mechanism of an upregulation of the glutamate and the substance P versus opioid induced hyperalgesia isn't really that. So opioid induced hyperalgesia is is your mu is mu receptor generated. So it's just constant overwash of mu receptors with opioids that cause that hyperalgesic condition, which is not really well understood. So I think the mechanisms of action are different, but the presentation is probably the same. Okay. I would imagine that falls under the same category as central or peripheral sensitization with that upregulation like you're talking about. So even if it's not right. neuropathic, it's that same underlying mechanism. Yep. 
And then our next question is, do you recommend using a contract for when you're prescribing an opiate? And if so, how often are you revisiting it? And are you using it selectively or with every patient? So you should have a contract with every single patient. The two of you really need to be on the same page in terms of the rules, in terms of opioids. And it's really important for the patients to understand that this is a serious undertaking and there's a lot of risk involved and it's for their own safety. You know, at the end of the day, it's about patient safety. We're not trying to be judgy. You know, I say this a lot to my patients. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to control you. I just want you to stay safe. So, you know, you and I have to be on the same page in terms of what appropriate use of this opioid is, what my expectations are of you to continue your therapy, and what your responsibilities are as a patient in order to continue your therapy. So, and this is just all spelled out. And a lot of patients just get the opioid agreement thrown at them and they sign it and they don't even read it. You know, every time I start an opioid, initiate an opioid with a patient, I'm like, okay, these are the main points that I want you really to remember And that's, you know, don't sell it, don't give it to anybody else, don't take anybody else's, don't crush or snort it, you know, take it only as prescribed, bring your pills to every visit, urine drug screens, you know, there's all these things that we have to be on the same page about when it comes to opioid therapy. And that reduces your liability and it improves uh, the patient's safety and ultimately improves patient care. Okay, thanks. So when we are in the setting of chronic pain, it might become a little bit more risky to start an opioid if we're thinking about opioid dependence. Um, Would you just kind of accept that as long as there is no abuse going on? Or would you try to find a different medication if a patient is becoming dependent on their opioid? Oh, I mean, it's an expected physiological response. There's really nothing you can do to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. So no, I wouldn't. They are dependent. I mean, if they're complaining to you that they're having withdrawal in between doses, then, you know, you need to kind of come to some sort of uh, solution for that. And the answer to that would be just, you know, lower the dose or take less if that's acceptable to them and they can manage the pain. These are conversations that you just have to sort of work through with your patient and decide what's best for them and what you're comfortable with. So dependence is something you're not going to be able to stop from happening in anyone. Right. And so with Like going back to the contracts, if you are following up with a patient and you know that they have not been following their contract and maybe they've skipped a few doses or diverted a few pills, what would you do next? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this is probably an opioid use disorder. I would definitely discuss it with them. Um, I might consider switching them to a buprenorphine treatment that is safer and doesn't have as much addiction or tolerance, things like that. I prescribe a lot of buprenorphine for chronic pain patients. So this is a situation you just have to talk to the patient and and assess the situation and and do what's best for that individual, keeping in mind that you want to keep them safe. That is the ultimate goal. Okay. So before we even get to opioids, how would you encourage a patient to try a non-opioid pain control measure? You know, some of these patients think that an opioid is going to be the cure-all and they're going to yeah. be fixed once they get it. And you say, no, let's try physical therapy. I talked to them about the slippery slope, you know, so it's, you know, opioids are, are not the do-all end-all. You know, you're going to get tolerant to them over time. One of my sayings that I say a lot to patients is slow and steady wins the race. We don't want to just jump on the best thing from the beginning, right? Or which really isn't the best thing in the long run. You know, let's look at the big picture here. If we can get you treated with physical therapy, occupational therapy, 
ultimately that is going to serve you better in the long run. And it's my job to put you on a path that's going to give you the best outcome in the big picture. You know, opioids are very risky. They're kind of dirty. You know, you get all the constipation, the dependence, the euphoria, the tolerance, you know, and you may develop an addiction problem. It's a quagmire. So it's a slippery slope. And as someone who cares about you and it wants to provide you the best care possible, I recommend uh, physical therapy. Let's try physical therapy first and see. I'm not completely averse to the idea, but right now, this is what I think is appropriate. Okay. And it looks like we have a few oncology practitioners in the audience. Um, And so is there a different assessment that you would do if you know that the patient is suffering from oncology-related pain? No. Okay. We're going to stick with the program. And the reason for that is because more and more we're seeing oncology patients recover. We need to think about that. Ten years ago, anyone who was, most people who were diagnosed with cancer did not recover. So we were very liberally prescribing opioids to those patients. And now, you know, we started to see some fallout where they, they got cured. And then, um, you know, they're on just these high doses of opioids and it's really difficult to get them off. So that's something I think you need to just keep in the back of your mind when you are prescribing opioids to a cancer patient. Um, in addition, they just because they have cancer doesn't mean they won't develop an opioid use disorder or a substance use disorder. So, you know, you need to keep that in mind and you don't want them dying from an overdose before they die from their cancer. You need to think about these things. So your assessment, your risk assessment should all be the same. All right. Here's a good question. It seems like a concern that an opioid may worsen a patient's depression. So are you going to work with a psychiatrist if a patient has depression? Or are you taking a different approach if sometimes the depression only comes on because of the chronic pain that someone is experiencing? So how do you address that kind of balance? Yeah, depression and pain just go hand in hand. So you really need to take care of both of them. And, you know, a lot of times patients don't want to talk to you about the fact that they're getting depressed associated with the pain because they feel like it it, it makes them look weak, like they can't handle it. So they're embarrassed about it. They don't want to talk to their family about it. Um, so it's something that, you know, you need to just get rid of the stigma. You know, it is normal to be depressed when you have a chronic pain condition. You know, I say I would be totally depressed if I had a chronic pain condition. If you're a human, you're just a human being. And that is normal. There is nothing weird or, or abnormal about that. Uh, and you may have some anxiety surrounding what does your future look like? You know, am I going to be in a wheelchair? Am I going to be bed bound? Am I going to be able to continue to provide for my family? There's a lot of psychological overlay when you, yes, you have to address the, the depression. And a lot of times I think for chronic pain patients, actually a therapist is better than a psychiatrist because they want to talk about it. They need to talk about it, talk about their fears, talk about their worries, you know, about the future and, you know, the family stuff, the, the impact on their family and their children and whoever else they're dealing with their work. They want to talk about it and, you know, they just need to get it off their chest. So I think a therapist probably is, is more valuable. Certainly medications are valuable. Um, usually I'll just start an antidepressant and if, uh, it gets more complicated and they're not doing well with it, I will send them then to psychiatric uh, referral. It is important to, um, mention the benzodiazepine question. Um, benzodiazepines and opioids, no, no, no together because of the respiratory depression and death issue associated with the concomitant use. 
which is something that you really need to talk to your patients about. A lot of um, people are still taking benzos and opioids together, and it's very, very dangerous. So it needs to be addressed. So, yeah, I think an antidepressant is is completely uh, within the realm and, and, and just, you know, sort of talking about it. How are you feeling? Are you sleeping? You know, are you feeling depressed? And if you bring it up instead of them, a lot of times they will talk about it a little bit better. Great. And that actually has sparked a few other questions about using um, an SNRI, which we talked about how those can be effective for pain. So would you use those to address both pain and depression or yeah. one together? Yeah, yeah. No, I use those two, or two birds with one stone, right? So you can, you know, add that. It's a good adjunct. You know, things like venlafaxine, duloxetine in particular is really good for a neuropathic pain condition and can also treat the depression. It's not as good as an antidepressant as it is a neuropathic pain drug. But yeah, certainly you can you can hit those two birds with one stone. I use a lot of amitriptyline for sleep uh, and that helps with depression as well. Yeah, you can certainly think about those things. Okay. And then we're going to switch topics a little bit here and go into marijuana and cannabinoids. Um, always a popular topic here. If you're in a state where cannabinoids are um, legal and the patient tests positive for them on their UDS, does that impact your opioid decision with them? This is such a difficult question. So I am in a state where medical marijuana is not legal, so I don't have to deal with it yet, but I'm sure I will at one point. I think a lot of my patients are already smoking marijuana, uh, even though it's not even legal. We don't even test for it here at my clinic. Um, so it's a can of worms. I think now that it has, you know, more studies are coming out to show that it does have medicinal qualities. Um, I would I would discuss it with your patient and just make sure that, you know, this is in your risk assessment, right? If they have a high risk for abuse, then, you know, you might, the marijuana might be a little bit more of a red flag. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do talk to them about it, um, because I'm concerned actually now with fentanyl everywhere that they might accidentally get fentanyl in their marijuana. So I, I talk to them about that. Um, just make sure they're, they're getting it from a reliable source, I suppose. Um, <laughs> where, where it is legal, you know, you, you, it is a little bit safer, I think, than just getting it on the street. But I, I don't think it's a, it's a do all and end all. And I think it really needs to be tailored to the specific patient. And just how you how you feel about, you know, their risk. Okay. Um, is there any risk to using marijuana while taking an opioid? I don't see any risk. I mean, there are different mechanisms of action. It's not, you know, marijuana is not a respiratory depressant. So um, I, I wouldn't be too horribly concerned about it uh, in terms of, you know, physiolog adverse physiological events um, with the two. Okay. And then let's go with CBD. Have you used that in management of pain? So we can do CBD here. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm talking to my patients about CBD. The, you know, the important thing that I tell them to remember is that, you know, you need to get it from somewhere that has, has tested it. So you know what percentages are in there and what percentage of THC in there as well from a reputable source is that are just on CBD for pain because my, my patients are, you know, really far gone in terms of chronic pain people. But for like beginning chronic pain people, the CBD certainly would be an option uh, to avoid an opioid. And my patients usually use it as an adjunct for sleep and it helps with their anxiety as well, helps to sort of calm them. 
Uh, so I think that in that way, for my patients, it is good. Uh, as a standalone, I, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I think it's worth a try in someone who is just, you know, starting with sort of a minor uh, pain issue. Okay. Can you co-prescribe naloxone to these patients? Yes. So I do. Everybody. When we first started talking about this, I was I was a little bit reluctant because I felt like it would give them a license to, you know, hey, I can take extra because I have this naloxone. But as the opioid epidemic is evolving into more of a heroin and fentanyl situation, I think uh, it's a responsibility for us to kind of flood the streets with naloxone at this point just to save lives. I do co-prescribe it just because it's one of the things that when auditors are looking at your charts, they look for. Uh, so it does sort of reduce your liability to some extent. So uh, for that, yes. And uh, just generalized safety, I think it's a good practice. Yeah, I would agree. I've had a primary care provider say to me, hey, we want to let you know that you can get naloxone whether or not you have an opioid prescription um, just because you can use it to help other people. Yeah, um, I thought that was incredible. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs, but it's where we are. And so that leads a little bit into health disparities. Um, so can you touch on some of the health disparities that are associated with the treatment of chronic pain and any tips that you have for overcoming them? You know, different cultures present in different ways. They describe things in different ways. They describe their pain in different ways. They talk about things in different ways. So it's an empathy switch and really sort of understand where they're coming from and what might be driving the way they're talking about their pain um, or the way they're not talking about their pain per se. So you have to really try and tease it out. And people of color, they, they are very stoic, particularly in a setting where they're in a doctor's office or a provider's office because they, they're very uncomfortable there. And, you know, so I think overcoming that is just, you know, getting them comfortable with you, gaining their trust. You know, I think all those things are just very, very important in different cultures to try and, you know, say, hey, we're all the same. We're just human. You're just human. I'm just here trying to help you. So, you know, let's just get to the nitty gritty of the situation. You can talk to me. It's okay. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, creating that empathy. And um, I know that one of the activities that we will have later on in this module is actually having a patient perspective on the importance of having a healthcare provider who's listening to you and who makes you feel comfortable describing your pain. Because if you're not comfortable giving the full story, then no one's getting help, really. Right. Let's see what's next is, oh, this is an interesting one. What are your thoughts on co-prescribing naloxone for hospice patients? That's a tough question because... You know, we don't want to overutilize, you know, the healthcare system, right? I mean, it comes into cost. You know, naloxone used to be cheap. And once we started co-prescribing it, whoever makes naloxone decided to jack up the price. So it, you know, from a cost standpoint, it probably doesn't make sense. All right. Going back to hyperalgesia, how would you describe that to a patient if you thought that's what they were experiencing versus like a need for more opioids or you're going to tell them, actually, we might want to cut down? This is a difficult conversation and mm -hmm. it's not one that patients like. This is not something they're going to accept the first time you tell them. So it's kind of something you just need to keep revisiting. You know, you have hyperalgesia. We talked about that before. And the answer to that is only to reduce your opioid. And I know you think that I'm wrong. I see it. I know what's happening to you. 
And no, I'm not going to increase your pain medication because that's only going to make it worse. There are other alternatives. This is when I usually have the buprenorphine conversation. You know, there are some answers that we could do, but, you know, they just kind of repeatedly, they come back and come back and come back asking for more and more medication. And you just have to stand your ground and say, no, you have hyperalgesia. This is a phenomenon that happens to people who've been taking high dose opioids for many, many years. It's well documented in the literature. You know, I'm happy to share the literature if you want to see it, but this is what's happening to you. And the answer is to reduce the pain medication. I know that seems counterintuitive to what you're thinking, but that is the reality of the situation. So you just got to, you know, it is something that just it's over time. You just have to keep standing your ground and saying, no, 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 you have hyperalgesia. And, and, you know, the only way that we can make that better is to reduce the medication. Okay. Are there any risk factors for developing opioid-induced hyperalgesia, or is it really kind of fickle? I think it's just higher doses, you know. So, of course, we're defining higher doses now as anything over 90 morphine equivalent. I would say even higher than that. I would say probably 150 over 200 for a period of years is a definite risk factor to developing hyperalgesia. I think that's the sole risk factor. Okay, that makes sense. Here's a question about devices, when in the algorithm, I guess, of pain control, would you start talking to a patient about using like a spinal cord stimulator? So 15 years ago, it it was last, absolute last. But now, of course, we're trying to stay away from opioids more. So it, it happens earlier in the conversation. You know, you have to have the candidate, right? So everybody who gets a spinal cord stimulator has to have psychological evaluation per the insurance, which makes sense because there are people who don't have the cognitive ability to work Mm -hmm. the machine. So, you know, it's a very, very expensive therapy. So you don't want to be just, you know, willy nilly giving it to anybody and everybody. So you have to be very cognizant of your candidates, first of all, and you have to make sure they have the appropriate condition that would respond to spinal cord stimulation. So you need to know a little bit about those types of things. But yeah, I think it's happening earlier in the conversation But it is all about appropriate candidate because that's how you're going to get your success with a spinal cord stimulator. Some patients I've seen, actually, I saw a patient who I used to work with in the hospital. She's a nurse and she, we ran into each other at an event and she said, I've got this horrible back pain. She's walking with a cane. She's retired now. You know, I I don't know what to do. And I said, well, come see me. And we just did spinal cord stimulator from the get-go. And uh, that was very, very uh, beneficial for her. So Yeah, I mean, it's just about appropriate candidates, people who don't want to be on opioid therapy or you don't feel as a candidate for opioid therapy. You might broach this topic from the beginning. It's not really last in the conversation any longer. It's coming up earlier. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And this one is asking if patients with depression or anxiety at the outset, just without any pain, are they at higher risk to develop chronic pain? Yes, You know, it's really interesting. Recently, I did a little bit of research on why some people develop chronic pain, same surgery, other people don't. And, you know, it's like same surgery, same age, same surgeon trying to figure out who is more at risk for developing a chronic pain condition after a regular surgery versus another person. And one of those risk factors is depression and anxiety. And I think it's it's about coping. And I do think that surgeons don't do a great job with expectations of outcomes of surgery, particularly spinal surgery. Many people think that they're just, their pain's going to be gone and that is the end. And that is not what happens. And they, they, they go into a tailspin, particularly people who are already depressed or anxious to begin with. So Yeah, I think that uh, those people need a little bit more counseling. Right now, Johns Hopkins is doing a great perioperative pain 
service, and they are working with patients pre-op, operatively, and post-operatively who are chronic pain patients, um, and they're just having fantastic outcomes in terms of life improvement, I'd say, uh, with these quality of life with these patients. So I think that we need to pay more attention to that, the perioperative period, in terms of better outcomes. Great. This will be our last question. And it's what is your experience using a TENS unit as a non-pharmacologic option? And maybe you could speak a little bit to what kind of pain or who might be a best candidate for a TENS unit. Yeah. So TENS units, you know, with my patients who are way far down that road, I think in the beginning, a TENS unit is a fantastic idea. It can be used for any pain condition, not really nociceptive, but nociceptive, neuropathic, pain condition, mixed I think it's worth a try. For many, it is a do-all end-all early on. And then for my patients, you know, who are, are way down the road, some of them use it as an adjunct, you know, or when they have a flare, they can use it instead of taking extra medication. We're always trying to find ways to do that. So yeah, TENS units do have a place and it's really just sort of a hit and miss. Some people, you know, don't get any relief and other people are like, oh, I love this thing. It's the greatest thing ever. So um, it's just, you know, but it's worth a try. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mandy. I do want to mention with all these great questions about pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options, we are having a webinar series on those topics. So stay tuned for those. Thank you again, Mandy. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. 